Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Longtime listeners, you know the drill. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving members. Just search for the show's name. As is our want, we will now make up a conspiracy involving one of our kind Patreon patrons. This time, we're honoring Mark, whose self-chosen pseudonym is Recently Deposed Leader of the Scottish Fruit Plate Faction. Listeners who have heard the early parts of our current series will know that I have very strong opinions about fruit plates and the hideous effects that the sickly green paper-like flavor of honeydew melons has on their quality. But to honor Mark, we will endorse what we assume are the main components of Scottish fruit plates using an appropriately horrific accent. So bring your wee bairns down to the chippy, and we'll deep fry up some juicy thistles, barnacles, haggis fruit, and oats for ye, ye bullhead. Mark, you're welcome, and you have my deepest apologies. If you'd like your name or your pseudonym to join the Roll of Honor at the top of a future show, just sign up at patreon.com forward slash the paranoid strain at the $5 tier. We thank you kindly, both for listening and for supporting. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line. Tell us what you think of the show. We're open to suggestions, criticisms, and recipes. Send them all to the paranoid strain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. But we're not here to parse potentially sane ideas. We're here for the crazy shit. So, let's take a quick walk back down memory lane to recall when the conspiracists first decided that the deployment of 5G and the sudden appearance of the novel coronavirus happening around the same time was just too much of a coincidence, and that therefore somehow the two phenomena must be connected. The question was, how? Especially because the idea that the two of them being correlated made no sense even on its face, so the crazies really had their work cut out for them. Only not really because they don't give a shit if it makes sense. For example, there was the vogue in late 21 and early 22 for suggesting that anyone who was willing to look beyond the corporate Gates-funded media complex's lies could easily see that the vaccine was causing humans to show up on Bluetooth connection screens of anyone who bothered to open their phone settings and check. As this very confident, extremely stupid Twitter video demonstrated by searching for open Bluetooth connections on a flight. I know this audio is just airplane ambiance, because that's all I got for you. In the visuals, he's showing you his iPhone's Bluetooth menu and how it's auto-populating with a bunch of mysterious codes when he leaves it open on his flight. 
He then has captions noting how this makes it easy to find all the sheeple who took the shot. We need hardly relate to you that this dunce was seeing not some sort of Gates citizen tracking Bluetooth code, but rather the pairing signals for dozens of encrypted wireless Bluetooth headphones, etc. Right? Yeah, but don't spoil his fun. He thinks he's so smart, and we're so very, very dumb. One far grosser variation of this idea suggested that, in fact, the shots were causing the heads of the vaxxed to explode in Israel as the first 5G antennas in that country were turned on. Like he said, this one's not just false, but particularly gross. Snopes clarified that it's a lie, paired with reportedly gruesome... That's reportedly, as in, I didn't watch it, and I recommend that you don't either. ...footage of Iraqi security forces in 2019 firing supposedly non-lethal gas grenades point-blank into protesters, causing the death of several as the canisters became embedded in heads and bodies. Nothing, obviously, to do with the vaccine. Or 5G. Or Israel. So, like, they only got every aspect wrong. Don't judge the loonies too harshly. So, yeah. In addition to whatever bizarro anti-vax bullshit you've heard from your local school board meeting or Trump rally, rest assured, still weirder stuff is out there, and there appears to be, as yet, no bottom to it all. The one to watch, as it were, in this space is the recently announced presidential run of formerly respected Kennedy scion and environmental crusader Robert F. Kennedy Jr. As we noted back in our anti-vax episode, number 16 in the feed if you want to check it out, Kennedy has long dedicated himself to leveraging poorly supported, shoddy, or outright fraudulent research to oppose life-saving childhood vaccinations, which makes him, in the face of strong competition, the odds-on favorite in the Kennedy clan's competition to besmirch the legacy of John and Robert Sr. The conspiracies about both of those assassinations are covered in our two assassination episodes, also in the feed. But now RFK Jr. has set his sights higher. He's running for president against incumbent Joe Biden, and as of this recording, has started off strong in the primary, with 20% of likely Democratic voters saying they would pick him over the current president, probably mostly based on the fact that his last name is Kennedy, and this is a Democratic primary. You remember a few years back when some local or state politician... Sorry, he's having to go on memory for this one, as all previous Kennedy headlines are currently buried under the tide of think pieces about RFK Jr.'s presidential bid. Yeah, anyway, this dude wildly overperformed expectations, and the only reason anyone could figure out to explain that was the fact that although he was unrelated, his last name was Kennedy, and Democratic voters like that name a whole lot. But that's not the biggest issue right now, since RFK Jr. will almost definitely fail to unseat Biden or even spur a debate. But since he's currently cozying up to some pretty hard-right outlets, mostly because more respectable mainstream media, knowing his loop-de-loo anti-vax stance, won't give him the time of day, and also given the fact that he's running on a ticket that, weirdly for a Kennedy, emphasizes free market economics in addition to unscientific vaccine stupidity, and then if you combine all of that with the prominent, equally unhinged place that the supposedly still-alive JFK Jr., RFK Jr.'s first cousin, of course, has in QAnon's Trump-focused fever dreams, There's always the possibility that, as the mainstream becomes ever more hardened against him, Trump could conceivably offer Bobby Jr. a VP spot to boost himself in the general election among Q-nuts, anti-vaxxers, and potentially even uninformed Democrats. Obviously, this is a long, long shot right now, but we live in weird times, and so we owe it to you to keep the possibility in mind. Also, we want to express our sympathy 
For the brilliant and hilarious Cheryl Hines, Larry David's ex-wife and the invisible Curb Your Enthusiasm, and real-life spouse of the ever-increasingly nutso RFK Jr., whose views she has repeatedly apologized for in recent years. I tell you, ladies, you make it to the top, land yourself a candidate, and look what happens. Moving on from the vax, what are some other smoking ruins of sense and cogent discourse we can disturb your dreams with? You keep telling them that you're going to gently flog your MSNBC listening audience, so you might want to get to that. Yeah, probably so. Okay, it's time for us to talk about the Russia dossier. Is this even Q-related? Well, kinda. But even more so, it's a lens we can use to scrutinize well-meaning people who are trying to interpret facts, and of course, generate the all-powerful ratings that the cable news machine demands. To see how much saner folks than Q adherents have been to some much milder extent deranged by the times that we live in. So for that reason, I think it's really important to understand what this was, how it was spun in the mainstream and left-leaning press, and how that approach may have enabled Trump to skate on far more serious subsequent charges. Those more serious charges are the Ukraine scandal, right? The one that led to the first impeachment? I am indeed thinking of that scenario. But it's not just that, Dana. To get started, though, let's go back to the early days after Trump's surprise election, as much of the country celebrated, and as an even larger number of us reeled at the realization that this bizarre, ridiculous thing had actually happened. Now, the Fox News... The decision desk has called Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. This means that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States, winning the most unreal, surreal <laughs> election we have ever seen. You'll recall in those days that a lot of people immediately branded themselves the resistance to Trump and his incoming administration. And to be fair to them, they did that for a lot of very good reasons. Remember that even before he took power, Trump was already advertising not only his willingness to adopt policies that seemed illegal, inhumane, internationally embarrassing, or in the case of the so-called Muslim ban, all three at the same time. He was also poised to ignore anything that got in his way, state or federal law, well-entrenched institutions, the basic mechanisms of government, common sense, etc. And then we all started hearing rumors about the so-called Steele dossier. That is, an opposition research file commissioned by the 2016 Clinton campaign to find as much dirt as possible on their opponent, Donald John Trump. The word was this dossier had uncovered some very damning direct connections between Trump world and the Russians. The dossier came about because the Clinton campaign assumed, correctly, that in addition to the many, many pieces of evidence that were widely available to show what a terrible, dishonest person Trump was, including a wide range of Trump's own pronouncements, both in public when he knew he was on the live mic. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. And in private, when he presumably didn't. I'm going to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful... I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss <laughs> I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. Yeah. In addition to all of the very obvious reasons why Trump would seem like an unconscionable candidate for president, the Clinton campaign wanted more dirt. Remember, at this point, everyone thought Trump running meant Clinton was a shoe-in. But her campaign knew that she not only faced an uphill battle against societal misogyny, but also that 
For the reasons we recently outlined, many Americans had understandably decided that both Hillary Clinton and her former president husband were kind of sleazy, too comfortable around big money donors, or on some level just not trustworthy or even distasteful. Yes, of course. Trump suffered from exactly the same negatives, plus many others. But enough people found his total shamelessness endearing. Plus, as just noted, societal misogyny. And of course, her chances weren't helped by the fact that she just wasn't a great candidate, prone to notoriously tone-deaf proclamations about deplorable Trump supporters. And that meant many former Obama voters either threw in their lot with Trump or failed to Pokemon go to the polls. Now, to be clear, I, Fearful Jesuit, will acknowledge here that I voted for Ms. Clinton and am still very comfortable saying that had she been elected instead of Trump, that would have been a far better result for the U.S. and the free world as a whole. But I think it's totally worth noting that Ms. Clinton, as a candidate, had some unique drawbacks. Specifically, a lot of people hate Hillary Clinton the way I hate George W. Bush. That is, out of all proportion with their disagreements with her policies. Even among those who might not have as many sexist reservations about women as president, many still didn't want that particular woman to be the president. But back to the subject at hand. The Clinton campaign contracted with a company staffed by former investigative journalists called Fusion GPS to dig up the aforereferenced dirt. Fusion reached out to a former MI6 agent. That's the British CIA, the agency that fictionally licenses James Bond to kill. Yeah, though nothing that sexy happens in this story. Anyway, that former British agent was a guy named Christopher Steele, who was happy to start digging into Trump's relations with the Russians. That summer of 2016, hackers published documents that they had obtained from Democratic National Committee email servers, including not only Trump opposition research funded by the Clinton campaign, but also internal research on Secretary Clinton herself. This is standard political operating procedure. You hire people to dig up dirt on your own candidate, presuming that whatever your operatives find, your opposition is going to have eventually anyway, and that way you can start developing messaging to counter those stories if and when they make headlines. During this period, it's fair to say that the mainstream media consensus was that Trump was the de facto pro-Putin candidate. A lot of this was based on DJT and his progeny's clear efforts to court Russian influence and favor for various real estate and other business plans they were proposing over the years before Trump began his run for the presidency. This includes his firm's repeated attempts to fund major construction projects in Russia. And the reason he had to turn to Russian-associated individuals and funding sources was because, in general, Western banks and developers had decided that loaning money to any Trump-associated business was a bad idea, especially given Don's routine practice of forcing everyone who did work for him to threaten legal action before they see one thin dime. And given the amount of poorly traced, oligarch-extracted money sloshing around the Russian sphere of influence, it makes sense that a person who was notorious for declaring bankruptcy and or failing to pay contractors the amounts owed, would eventually find himself required to reach out to, let's say, unconventional or questionable or probably super-duper corrupt funding sources. All of this is standard sleazy international business. The only reason these scenarios are important and complicated is because the sleazy businessman in the middle isn't simply some greaseball from Queens. It's specifically the greaseball who is the now former president of the United States.
decision now. The Fox News decision desk has called Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. This means that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States, winning the most unreal, surreal <laughs> election we have ever seen. Turning to the first days of his administration in early 2017, as you might expect, his relationship with the media immediately went sideways. But this is the point where we start relying heavily on a multi-part review of the whole Russiagate affair by veteran investigative reporter Jeff Gerth, which was published in four parts in January of this year by the Columbia Journalism Review, one of the most respected publications in the country. Gerth points out that two of Trump's most overused and popular slogans, fake news and the idea that the press is the enemy of the people, both date back to the first few weeks of his presidency. When a flurry of stories were emerging that connected him with Russia based on the aforementioned Steele dossier, which in turn relied on what proved to be flawed or debunked information gathered by non-James Bond former MI6 agent Christopher Steele. In other words, in some sense, the very first stories Trump labeled as fake news were kind of fake? Now, don't lose the thread and think that this is turning into some sort of Trump apologia. Once more with feeling, it is the official stance of the paranoid strain that Trump is a bottomless emotional pit, a narcissistic moron who is also an instinctual genius in the, as it turns out, horrific skill set of A, convincing older white Americans that they are put upon and that he is their only real defender, and B, that in spite of his multitude of business and personal failings, his political enemies are worse and are coming to steal your gas stove and make your kids transgender. Weird skill set? Yes. Effective skill set? Unquestionably. Very effective. Trump in office, however, proved largely ineffective, with a few exceptions that have quietly become more acceptable on both sides of the aisle than they were when he proposed them. For example, one of Trump's big campaign issues was the undeniable fact that NATO allies were not living up to their treaty obligations in terms of their GDP percentages dedicated to defense. Now, there are a bunch of reasons that the U.S. let this slide for a long time, including the fact that the de facto agreement by these countries to let the U.S. be the unilateral hegemon for the world was worth a certain amount of defense funding fudging for American policymakers in the post-Soviet era. Trump, though, as everyone who pays attention knows by now, sees the entire world as a purely transactional series of negotiations. So if Germany wasn't pumping enough of its GDP into defense, the solution was to threaten to pull out of the NATO alliance until the crowd started pulling their weight. So it turns out that several of Trump's ideas that at the time seemed belligerent have, whether deliberately or through happenstance, turned out to produce positive results. Germany has since 2016 vastly increased its defense spending, though one could argue that's more a response to Russian aggression than anything else. And Biden and the Washington establishment generally support maintaining a number of Trump-era anti-China tariffs and exclusions, though for reasons of national security rather than the reflexive urge to create a trade war that animated Trump. Again, and I can't emphasize this enough, Donald Trump is a cancer on the politics of both the U.S. and the civilized world. But still, we're not willing to ignore some positives that came out of his administration, even if their benefits were accidental. Though it is worth noting that Trump's general skepticism of NATO and the U.S. defense agreements fed into the narrative that suggested he was doing Putin's bidding. Right. So, back to the Russiagate thing. There were, even early on, various dissenters from the mainstream consensus that Trump was at best being manipulated by the Russians and at worst a fully paid-off Ruski intelligence asset. Masha Gessen, whose excellent book on Putin we covered earlier in our series, thought labeling Trump a Putin agent was deeply flawed, 
and Matt Taibbi, the combative journalist whose main claim to fame is his characterization of Goldman Sachs as a giant vampire squid during the financial crisis, was dismayed to see his fellow journalists completely abandon the idea of neutral reporting. The CGR piece quotes him thus, saying anything publicly about the story that did not align with the narrative. The repercussions were huge for any of us that did not go there. That's crazy. Yes, we know that many feel that Taibbi has become a sort of crank in recent years, and that he was manipulated by Elon Musk in an attempt to make the Twitter file story seem like a bigger deal than it is. But it doesn't matter what you think about those more recent developments. The issue here is that Taibbi was pretty clearly right about the US press jumping on the idea of deep and two-way connection between the Russians and Trump's campaign and administration, and about the news organization's unwillingness to do any soul-searching when it turned out those connections were vastly overstated. And of course, we can't forget that Trump's logoria and showman's instincts, and more broadly his seeming inability to even pretend to give a shit whether what he's saying is true or even sounds insane, led to one of the most memorable and seemingly damning quotes from that entire bizarre election season. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. If Russia or China or any other country has those emails, I mean, to be honest with you, I'd love to see them. My God, you finally did it. We're talking about her emails. Yeah, sorry, but the CJR article convincingly argues that Trump was in fact doing his showman act for the press at the time of that quote. Remember, this is June of 2016, before his relationship with the press had become completely toxic. And Girth points out that at this point, Trump had no idea that anyone was developing stories that connected him to Russia. Look, assume for a moment that he wasn't in direct contact with the Russians as part of some sort of scheme to land him in the White House as a Putin puppet, which again, appears to be the case. If that's true, then, and this is going to be tough, imagine you're in Trump's position vis-a-vis hearing these stories about Russian connections you know aren't true. In that scenario, and given Trump's predilections, it's obvious that candidate Trump would lash out, saying something outrageous, to generate headlines, because that's what's worked for him throughout the entire campaign. Thus, the Russia find her emails line. Again, we keep saying this because we feel like we're going to lose some of you, Given the multitude of ways that Trump kept upending, ignoring, or tearing through norms that the American political world had never even questioned in the past, it was reasonable that horrified journalists and officials would interpret his little joke as anything but a little joke. But trying to watch it in context from this later vantage point and with an open mind, I have to say I think the reading where Trump is just talking off the top of his head and not specifically and deliberately and genuinely asking the Russians to accomplish something on his behalf is probably fair. Again, this is hard to parse, and Trump is terrible. But still, it doesn't look much like genuine collusion. It looks like Trump being Trump. Now, this CJR article, while comprehensive, isn't perfect. Gert's revisionist even-handed instincts dramatically understate some obvious facts that support the conventional view of Trump as a gigantic volcano of self-serving misinformation. For example, here's how he describes Trump's war with the press. At its root, was an undeclared war between an entrenched media and a new kind of disruptive presidency with its own hyperbolic version of the truth. Hyperbolic version of the truth here presumably meaning a disregard for the idea of honest communication so global as to suggest a satire on the concept of communication through language. 
That little rhetorical flourish might sound neat, but you should know it's stolen from a brilliant New York Times review of L. Ron Hubbard's 10-volume Mission Earth series, which Jesuit memorized verbatim decades ago. Great artists steal, unicorn. But Girth also acknowledges that Trump's own inability to keep his goddamn mouth shut led him to provide off-the-cuff responses to questions about his Russia dealings that naturally then led to headlines painting a darker, more deliberate portrait of his dealings with the Russians than the facts would actually support. Then, for its part, the press played up those misleading suggestions in the moment, and when the implications later proved false, their corrections and follow-ups were largely overlooked by both sides and buried in a way that the screaming headlines never were. What the careful reporting of this CJR article seems to support is that many of the most strident voices in the resistance press were all too willing to hype up storylines that turned out simply not to match the facts and evidence, and they did this because they saw Trump as an existential threat to everything they value. In this instance, and this one alone, they would argue, they were justified in tearing up the fair reporting rulebook in order to oppose him. For example, when Trump appeared to accept Putin's denials of interference in the 2016 election over his own intelligence agency's detailed reports. I was asked the question. My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. So I have great confidence in my intelligence people. But uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. Which is a disturbing enough international relations situation on its own. Reporters like MSNBC's Rachel Maddow took it a step too far. At the time, she noted in her blog that her insistence on covering the Trump-Russia scenario so aggressively was now validated because, quote, Americans were now coming to grips with the worst-case scenario that the U.S. president is compromised by a hostile foreign power. I hope it's clear that however simpering Trump could be in his urges to cuddle up with authoritarians like Putin, there was never an indication that he was actually compromised by a hostile foreign power. A Cold Warish phrase that makes it seem as if Putin was literally calling the shots for U.S. policy through Trump because of the dirt and leverage he had on the former president. I'm sure Vlad would have loved for that to be reality, but it just wasn't the case. Which brings us to the Russian election interference story, closely aligned with, though technically separate from, the Russiagate conflagration. As we all now know, the Russians did what they could to influence the 2016 election, mostly by attempting to spread chaos and gin up strife through targeted ads and posts on social media. This is when your Nana's Facebook started blowing up with stories about Islamic gangs taking over her local Cracker Barrel, putting it under Sharia law, and replacing the slow-cooked ham with falafel or some shit. In an influential article in January of 2017, the New York Times concluded that the recent Russian efforts were, and we're definitely quoting, the most effective foreign interference in an American election in history. Now, we'll leave it to historians to argue the veracity of that statement, but we're wanting to focus on how the Times reporters arrived at that conclusion in the first place. The piece notes that the Internet Research Agency, a Russian troll operation, was able eventually to reach 126 million Americans with its content, nearly the number that it voted in 2016. In the CJR article, experts call bullshit on that figure. That eventual audience, the Times is referring to, was the potential number of users who might have seen the relevant content over the course of two years, including nine months after the election. The article also notes that the data Facebook submitted to Congress in relation to their follow-up investigations confirmed that half of the impressions for the ads in question 
transpired during that post-election period, when they couldn't possibly have influenced the election. The House of Stock also referred to the IRA's ad targeting as relatively rudimentary and calculated that the total amount spent by the Russian disinformation house on election-related content was about three grand. As Gerth points out, you don't have to trust Facebook to realize that the Russian content operation's impact was far less than many breathless press reports like the Times would have led you to believe. Again, quoting. A study by Danish and American scholars published by the National Academy of Science the following year found no evidence that interaction with the IRA accounts substantially impacted the political attitudes and behaviors of Twitter users. The deep dive by Harvard researchers warned that overstating the impact of Russian information operations helps consolidate the aim of the operations to disorient American political communications. And yet, as of April of last year, a poll found that 47% of voters, 72% of Democrats, believed that the 2016 race was probably tipped by Russian interference, a conclusion that is simply not justified by any available facts. So how did so many people get misinformed about this? Obviously because they're trusted, usually trustworthy, news sources have fed them the sky is falling stories about Russians hacking our elections and installing Donald Trump for years now. That has a real effect. The same, incidentally, is true of the whole Cambridge Analytica fiasco. There was a general panic over that company's supposedly ultra-sophisticated technology, which developed psychological profiles of 87 million Facebook users that would allow individualized custom messaging that could sway the voting behavior of huge swaths of the electorate, threatening the foundations of democracy. Meanwhile, the real story was that Cambridge Analytica in the hallowed tradition of grifters everywhere, were hyping the shit out of their largely ineffective tech to hoover as many dollars from gullible, ethically challenged political groups as possible before anyone was able to peek behind the curtain and call bullshit on their claims. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.